Hello and welcome back to the Granter Podcast. In this episode, Sandra Newman, author of the novels The Only Good Thing Anyone Has Ever Done, Cake, The Country of Ice Cream Star, and four non-fiction books, joined me, Lucy Diver, to discuss her new novel, The Heavens. The Heavens is a story of love complicated by time travel, in which Kate's dreams of her life as the Elizabethan courtier Amelia Bassano begin to affect her waking life in New York in the year 2000. We discussed friendship, romantic love, and the necessity of hope. It begins at this party scene in the year 2000 in the affluent West, everyone a little in love with each other. And I, I love that, that opening scene, um, which we publish an extract of in Granta, and there's this, there's this feeling of kind of immense hope. Um, the first year without any wars, when you open up the newspaper like opening a gift. And it, it is a love story, um, but they meet at this party, who's, which is hosted by this woman called Sabine. And the kind of friends that surround this couple... I found some of the most compelling characters in the book. So um, they say, you know, you can't choose your family and uh, you can only choose your friends. I think maybe one could say that you can't really choose who you fall in love with either. Mm-hmm. And your friends are what you choose. So I wondered if you could talk about the, the friendships in this book um, in your work more generally. Friendship as a concept. Yes, I think uh, friendship is a grossly understudied and mm. like not thought about nearly enough given that they are, for many people their friends are the people who they will see the most of in their in their lives mm. they're, they're the people who are there at the beginning and at the end and who they see every week who they go to first with their problems who they talk to to figure out their philosophical take on the world and I think in this book in the heavens I mean the heavens is very much about utopias and dystopias and friendship is a bit of a utopian condition in the book and I think in many people's lives. Friendship is where things are not about barter. It's about, it's a gift economy. And it is, it is as you're sort of referring to, a chosen family. Yeah. It's a group of people to whom you choose to be loyal, to whom you choose, for whom you choose to be responsible. And that is, like it's a, it's a little taste of what utopia would be. Mm. It's an example of how we are utopians and we can be utopians and we have this potential to be truly generous people, to be truly loving people, to people who no one will judge us for abandoning, but we do not. We choose to do the good thing. Yeah, one of my favourite bits in the book is when a group of friends essentially choose to raise this baby in a house mm. and it's this kind of brief but and fragile utopia. Yeah, this... And that is the the baby in this book mm. is is this sort of kernel of of what is at stake in all the decisions we make politically and in mm. our lives. We have, you know, the the baby, the world. There's this like this fragile life that we are all responsible for. And in this book, mostly people make the right decisions and they they try to do the right thing and they are very good to each other. And there is this frustrating problem which I think a lot of us experience that because of history it's never quite enough. Yeah absolutely. In this book there's this kind of struggle between romantic love which kind of seems to make the world worse in that every time Kate uh, goes back in time and changes the world a little bit for the worse that happens more so when she's in love. There's yeah love as this uh, romantic love as this corrosive potentially damaging thing and friendship as this 
you know, utopian possibility. And I, I think the toxicity of love um, is something that I've seen in elsewhere in your work. Mm. Um, this kind of uh, potentiality for romantic love to be an anti an anti utopian thing is that is love is romantic love anti utopian? That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that as a theme in my work. It probably is. Um, yeah, I think it it's sort of I guess romantic love is the original sin. Like mm. we think of in previous cultures in earlier cultures, it was much better understood that sex and romantic love are the same thing, and romantic love is just the full blown version of sexual desire, which is something that. You know, I believe it's a beautiful thing. It's an intoxicating thing. I think the things that are dangerous to us are sometimes the things that we love the most and wouldn't want to live without. And certainly romantic love, sexual love is one of those things. Obviously, people do make it work and turn it into a family where the sexual love is intertwined with a friendship and becomes a thing which can contain all of these contradictory things at once, but most of us don't make it work, and I think we're a bit unrealistic about how likely it is to work. For most of us, romantic love is something which is full of sacrifice and pain as well as ecstasy. And I think in this book there's that feeling of how it is quite narcissistic, and we've all experienced being the friend of someone who's romantically in love, <laughs> which is an unenviable position almost always. Yeah, they kind of uh, vanish into new boyfriend Narnia, and you're like, okay, they're gone for three months, but I just have yeah. to hope they come back afterwards. Yeah, and it's so easy to say the wrong thing about the new boyfriend at every stage, and, yeah. and then you're there to pick up the pieces post-boyfriend yeah. Which is, again, an unenviable position a lot of the time, especially if it's not the first new boyfriend that you've picked up the pieces of. So so it's, it's, it's one of these funny things. Like, your, your romantic love is always this, this beautiful and amazing thing, and someone else's romantic love is always this inexplicable mistake. One of the things that, that at the very beginning of the novel, there's the sense of hope in the political sense, but there's also that, that the hope in new love they meet someone at a party mm. and, and that fills you with hope. When it begins, it's the year 2000, but it's a better year 2000 than our year 2000 was. And and part of that, like, there's a feeling in it, like everyone, as it says at the beginning of this party, everyone's in their 20s. And of course, Ben is just falling in love. So, if, so it's that world where you're young and you're in love for the first time, really, and everyone's doing okay and you're at a party and everything is magic. Yeah. So, and it's, you know, that political moment is described as when opening the newspaper was like opening a gift. Yeah. So it's that kind of magical moment, which I think all of us have in our lives, regardless of how terrible the political situation may be. We all have moments like that when we're walking down the street and we've just had, just had exactly enough wine and <laughs> we just had the best conversation of our lives and we just met somebody who is going to be an amazing friend or whatever. And the world seems absolutely fraught with possibility and beauty. So, and I think like that's one of the nice things about romantic love, actually, yeah. is that it can give you that, and it can fuel all of this this powerful and lovely speculation about the potential of other people. That other people are full of magic. That other people, you, it's one of the ways that we most potently realize that another person 
is just as complex as we are and that they have as many strange concepts about the world, strange habits, like little ideas that have passed through their heads, things, songs that run in their head every single day when they do a certain task. You know, that every person is a culture, actually, and every relationship that you have with one other person is also a culture. And so, like, the world is, the world is, like, such a, a incredibly beautiful and complicated place and I, I think romantic love is one of the ways that we encounter that almost physically. I loved Sabine in this book who who is the friend who's who's running around picking up the pieces of not just Kate and Ben but but everybody she's trying to pick up the pieces of the whole the whole world and this kind of sense of that there throughout the book is that as 2000 deteriorates from the the hopeful state that it's in at the beginning of the book and the dire state that it's in at the end this idea of living at the end of the world and continually battling on trying trying to make it in some way better not just on a political level but also on a personal level yeah i think she's an interesting character she's um She's the adult, I guess. She's yeah. the adult in the room throughout. <laughs> She's always like frustratedly ranting about how everybody else is driving her crazy and threatening threatening them and yelling at them and taking care of them at the end of the day. So this, she's one of my favorite characters. And I think she's also sort of interesting as an example of someone who's like obviously on every page of the book preeminently sane but also has this terrible problem of anorexia, which is killing her in, yeah. in the book. And you sort of see that, that there are different kinds of, there are different kinds of sanity. And a lot of the book is about like, what is sanity and what is insanity. And you can have somebody who has an absolute grasp on reality and on what is important and like a very strong sense of priorities. And yet they, they have a mental illness. Uh, let's talk about the Elizabethan portion of the mm-hmm. novel. How much research did you do for it, and how did you find that process? Was it, like, wading through details, and was that very boring? Was that very inspiring? It was It was a lot of research, and it was, I mean, it's often fascinating and fun. You know, there are things about the Elizabethan period that are just so lovable and relatable. For instance, one of my favourite things about the Elizabethan period at King Henry's court, and I'm sure all of the other courts had a terrible problem that the courtiers were continually stealing the furniture and pissing in the fireplaces, and they're gone. <laughs> they trying to get the courtiers. You know, they're drunk a good deal of the time, and they behave really badly. So it's it's a bit of a chaotic period. There's a lot of violence. Violence was much more normalized. We think of we think of it like that. The body aspects of the Elizabethan period really seem to be for real. But at the same time, the Elizabethans themselves like, took a very dim view of all of this and were very gloomy and grumpy yeah. and disparaging of each other and thought it was disgusting that people stole the furniture and pissed in the fireplace. And Although they were not nearly as disapproving of the violence. Yeah. So, so it's it's very interesting period, like a bottomlessly interesting period, but it's really, really hard to find out the things that you need to know as a novelist like what kind of mattress they slept on. Yeah, those sort of everyday details. Yeah. One thing that is really amazing is that, I mean, all of your books have such different voices, such um, distinct and, and like, well... 
uh, well-formed voices with such a depth. And I wondered about how you got into this kind of almost Elizabethan rhythm and style. I mean, did, did you read Shakespeare? Did you read Amelia, um, Amelia, Amelia's works? Um, how did you kind of get into that? Um, I did read a lot of Shakespeare coming into it, and, and obviously I read Amelia's works, although they're not... They're not as as close to prose that as I really needed for developing the voice of the book, and also quite a bit of just like lesser known prose writers of the Elizabethan period. I'm not going to be able to remember the really less known ones. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Greens, I read some of his work. Oh, I've and, heard him. He's great. Yeah, and Thomas Nash, who's <sighs> really fantastic. He's so, so funny. Great. He's yeah, in, he's just like the weirdest. And and he has lots of those weird little details about mattresses, I imagine. He does, yeah. I found I found a lot of stuff. I mean, you have to really comb through. But, <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of work. And it's dense. It's really actually often quite hard to understand. A lot of these words had their little life for 10 years and then died out, and you can't even look them up anymore. On a very kind of nuts and bolts uh, way, how did you how did you create that? this sort of sense that what you're reading could be could be Shakespearean prose I don't know I guess you just shut your eyes and go into it and and then rewrite it if it doesn't work it's hard to say exactly there's a I mean it's a bit of an act of ventriloquism except that well ventriloquism I mean ventriloquism if I'm the dummy yeah. And you're trying to imagine that an Elizabethan person is throwing their voice into you, which of course they're not really. So but that's sort of what you do. Backwards you, ventriloquism. That, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. But but it is how, like how I get a voice is that I, I pretend I've already got it. That's how I generally get a voice. Right. And and once it starts working, it then I can imitate that voice and build from there. Yeah sort of start start you know start with one page and then the rest will kind of go from there or yeah if you or even if you can get one line one line wow yeah lots of, i mean lots of people talk about the the kind of dialect in your previous novel ice cream star i mean how was that different creating this kind of dialect i mean not from scratch but it's it's set in the future rather than the past so there isn't, I guess, the fear that some Elizabethan scholar is going to come through with a red pen. Yeah. Um, how how were the how were those different? It was sort of similar. I mean, with with Ice Cream Star, as you say, I could just I could just make it up. Both forms of language that's very very aestheticized, and the Elizabethans genuinely had a very aesthetic relationship to language. It was a pastime to make up new words, and the phrases that they come out with are just astonishing. One phrase that I, I kept trying to find a way of using it and I could not, but I just came across it in the author who has, I can't remember. <laughs> but uh, it was a phrase meaning death, which was that wild Irish country of worms. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And there's stuff like that everywhere. And you just like pause and it's it's amazing, like their relationship to language. In In Ice Cream Star, when I was writing that, I was trying to create this language, this patois, which was I don't know, which had that sort of aesthetic power to it and in some ways it was easier because you could just make up a phrase like that and pretend that that's just how people speak in the future and that's a phrase they always use 
you know, that like these idioms that I would make up, which for me were beautiful, but were supposed to be just what everyone said in this world that I'd invented. So in a way, that's handy. You can just make things up. But in another way, if you're going back to the Elizabethan period, you don't have to make them up because people have already come up with them for you. and You can just steal them. So, yeah. so that's nice, too. You wrote recently for The Guardian about how we need to, you know, restore our, our faith in in hope and utopia and about how kind of expectations of every every good project to turn into Stalinism have kind of ruined ruined utopias mm-hmm. and we need to reclaim them. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about hope in the heavens and in the world now. As I was saying for The Guardian, I think we've begun to be suspicious of hope in this way. Partly we, there's a very cynical... A, a kind of a discourse that any project to make the world better is bound to end in something worse than what we began with, which is very clearly not true. There have been all kinds of projects to make the world better, like sanitation, which have made the world better. Like generally, if you have a project that's intended to make the world better, you can look at it and say, well, what are you actually doing? How is it going to make the world better? What are the possible unintended consequences? You can decide, is it worth the risk? You don't have to just say, oh, it's intended to make the world better, therefore it's a utopian Orwellian project that's social engineering and it's going to end in disaster, which is what a lot of people attempt to, to tell us. But I think it more topically, like right now, there has been a tendency to despair which I think is really understandable because it seems like things are headed in this bad direction and everything that happens is just speeding the world in that direction more rapidly. And we can't see why this should be the case. Like really, like every explanation you come up with seems inadequate. One almost hopes that there is someone who is like traveling back in time and, and, uh, that's why everything's going wrong, right? It's, it seems at this point possibly the most logical explanation. <laughs> yeah, it's really baffling and really terrifying. But I think we, we need to remember, however painful it is to remember this, we need to remember that there is still hope and there are still things that we can do. And therefore, inconveniently, we still have a responsibility to try to do something, to change mm. things, even if it's just having those unpleasant conversations with people who we disagree with talking to them as equals as people who can be convinced and suffering the frustration of not convincing them (laughs) as usually happens because we need to keep the door open we need to keep trying we need to remember that we're still alive so what would a, a literature of hope or a utopian literature look like um, I think it's what it's always looked like is a lot of arguing. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, while you're still arguing, you still have hope. Like I think one of the one of the most hopeful things that I can say to people, which people people generally just tell me I'm wrong, but I think it's true. You can convince people of things. I have convinced people of things. It takes much longer than it should and it's not always successful. And people have convinced me of things as well. You know, again, it took much longer than it should have. And it was much more painful than it should have been, and it involved much too much of me being insulting to them (laughs) when I still disagreed. But you can convince people, and that's one of the most important things that you can do in your life on Earth, is try to figure out what the truth is, and try to share that truth with other people so that we have some hope of making a better world.